This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show here on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. Guess what? All you have to do now to listen to UK Health Radio is say, Alexa, play UK Health Radio. That's if you've got Alexa, that is. So that's a, a big advance. Also, you can go to my blog, which is on my website, relaxbackuk.com, and there are links to the Relax Back UK shows, also links to the guests' info, and uh, there's often also a short video preview of each show. Now, we'll have to see how that goes, considering I do have a radio face rather than a video one. Still, I'm, I'm enjoying doing them, so we'll see. Great topics this week. Anyone thought of having plastic surgery? So, okay, so let me tell you where the danger lies. So injecting the fat is a fairly simple procedure, except for the fact that if you inject it too deeply, i.e. into the muscle of the butt, the gluteal muscle, there are some fairly large and fragile veins that you could tear. And the fat cells can then, or the globs of fat can go into the venous circulation, travel to the heart and lungs, and kill you almost instantaneously. How about now? Still want plastic surgery? I have a very frank discussion with plastic surgeon Dr. Michael Zoutzer, otherwise known as Dr. Miami, about plastic surgery, about the risks, about why people do it, how many people do it, what exactly is a Brazilian butt lift anyway? He is a very funny guy and has made many people look very different with his plastic surgery. He's definitely worth listening to, really no matter what your thoughts on the subject are. Then we move on to a very different medical discussion, one which was started last week. Uh, I attended a conference in London recently. It was entitled The Changing Face of Medicine. The conference was in London and it was looking how medicine and how it's delivered could change in the next 20 years or so. Now, there's not so many laughs as with Dr. Miami, but it could, this kind of discussion could help a lot more people stay healthy in the future. Uh, last week, we heard about genomic, genomics and uh, how tech such as AI, artificial intelligence, will influence medicine and its delivery. So please do listen to that show on the Listen Again facility if you think that would uh, interest you. This week, I speak to a young doctor, who, and he will be practicing, hopefully, for the next 20 years. Kind of the, the, the social challenges that we were anticipating kind of between how the future of the doctor-patient relationship will be and how technology will influence that has been something that's been really eye-opening for me, given that in a few years' time, this will be something that, this will be the work environment that I'll be kind of moving into and, and hopefully kind of take more of a leadership role in. There's also a report back from a group of patients and doctors telling the medics what they hope and expect to receive from them in the future. So do please stay tuned for a fantastic show. Thank you. Let's back UK. I enjoyed talking to Dr. Michael Sautzer, aka Dr. Miami. Uh, a lot of what we chatted about really surprised me. So he's done 
there has been periods when he's done up to eight to ten surgeries a day now he's got a price list on his website have a look at it and do the maths or math as they would say this industry is worth a lot of money um, I really enjoyed the chat with him I'm not sure I really get plastic surgery so certainly there are many cases of people who have accidents they've been burnt or they've been born with issues soldiers who've been hurt fighting where it is certainly needed and there are also some people who do suffer serious depression or effects if they don't like the way they look but I kind of get the impression that's a pretty small percentage of most plastic surgery that takes place anyway all that to one side Dr Miami was great to talk to and he must be good at what he does because he has a great long list of past customers and people that want to be customers in the future anyway I started off by asking him if he really does go by the name of Dr Miami that's right you are so lucky that is absolutely right how you're so lucky to be speaking with me <laughs> well sure I get that how how come you're called Dr Miami well I'm a doctor and I practice in Miami that's for starters um, but really it's a social media handle, you know, it's, uh, is it? okay. kind of like, uh, you know, like two chains or, uh, Snoop Dogg. It's a, uh, it's a, it's your handle. It's my okay. handle. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Okay. All right. So, all right. So Dr. Miami, I've got to tell you, I'm not really, I don't really inhabit the high octane world of plastic surgery. <laughs> so, so I started off, I looked you up, I looked at some of the videos uh, and there's, there's, uh, and there's a video of you playing in a ball pit. And yes. th there's also a video of you talking about someone trying to pay you with flat tummy tea. So <laughs> I, I, I saw these things and I thought, God, is this guy real? Is this is, oh, is someone real. having a laugh with me? No, no, no. I'm a real person. I'm a real surgeon. I do a, a, a heck of a lot of surgery, actually. That's um, what I meant. You're a real surgeon. Yeah, yeah I'm a real surgeon, uh, not, not, a, not an avatar. I, I'm a real person, um, okay. not, not some kind of 3D generated thing um, <laughs> from a computer. But beyond that, I do surgery every single day, well, during the week, and, uh, and I, I Snapchat it uh, or stream it on uh, you know, Snapchat, Instagram. You'll see some stuff on YouTube. Okay. Right, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, so, yeah, we'll chat about that in a bit. But yeah. so, so how many procedures do you do in one day then? Oh, you know, lately, uh, I'm getting to be an old man, so maybe two or three uh, okay. surgeries a day. Um, you know, in, in my prime, it was like eight to 10, but uh, and okay. I've slowed it down a bit. All right. And you, you do all kinds of procedures and you do some, you operate on some many stars. Can you name some, name drop a few? Oh, <laughs> well, let's just say the, the ones that don't mind me talking about their surgery, they're all mainly reality TV stars or musicians. You can just, you can just Google Dr. Miami and surgery. The ones that are out there in the public, it'll come right up okay. or on the Wikipedia page. I just, it's, it's awkward for a doctor to like name drop uh, patients. No, and I, the A-listers yeah. for sure don't want their names out there at no, all. I, I, get, I get that. For some reason. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of people uh, in the entertainment business. Like I said, mostly actresses, singers, um, some wives and girlfriends of athletes and so forth. Right. Um, and I've got to say, because I'm such a dork, I probably wouldn't have heard of these people anyway, I have to say. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the kind of main topic I think that, that is, is potentially uh, going to crop up is mm -hmm. th this procedure you do called a BBL. What is that? Yes. What is a BBL? 
It, it, the BBL is, stands for the Brazilian butt lift. It's neither a Brazilian operation and it's not really a lift of the butt, but it's called the BBL. What we do is we take fat from the areas of the body you don't want it, like the tummy, the love handles, thighs, arms, you name it. We suck that out with liposuction, put antibiotics into the fat, isolate the fat, and then inject it into the butt to make it plumper, rounder, whatever shape you know the patient wants. Now, it's kind of a two for one because you get skinnier in the waist, wider in the hips. And really, it's the only way to change, you know, dramatically change a person's body shape. If you work out or lose weight, gain weight, you kind of just become a bigger version of the same shape, but you don't get to shift things around like we do in a BBL. And right. for many women who want like a curvy shape, you know, they're kind of out of luck unless they do surgery because if there's no, if you're not born with fat pockets, on your hips, you're never gonna have hips. There's no muscle there. So uh, it's, a, it's quite a dramatic operation. Very, very, very popular in the US and South America. Less so in Europe, um, but still you know, really quite in demand. Uh -huh. um, yeah, so that, and that's, that's what uh, Miami is kind of known for being a, you know, a mecca, so to speak, for that operation. And you've made, you've made a group the World Association of Gluteal Surgeons, otherwise known yeah, as WAG. Yeah, that's a real group. We just had our first conference in Miami last month. We have over 175 surgeons in uh, 40 some odd countries, maybe 47 countries. So it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty uh, wide ranging group and we all like to do Brazilian butt lifts and we, we have a, you know, a communication a WhatsApp group and chats about how to make the operation better, safer. Um, it's you know, really in, quite... in the UK, you know, WAG stands for wives and girlfriends, usually of a, yeah. a football team yeah. or a soccer team. That's, uh, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek, yeah. Not, not unintentional, the name. Uh, okay. But it happens to work. So, <laughs> and people remember it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, so it was, what brought this need to make this little gang, or quite a big gang, actually, yeah, of quite surgeons a big gang. that do this so, thing? So the reason is because the demand for the operation sort of outstripped the supply of both surgeons who could do it safely and information for the pub that the public needed to make good decisions about where and when to do this operation. So, uh, for example, in the U.S., uh, just in Miami, we've had 12 deaths from this operation in the last uh, six or seven years. Around the world, probably closer to 30 or 40, um, which doesn't sound like a, a like a, a lot, but it you know compared to like deaths in a car accident or something. But since it is surgery, it is elective. We want to make sure that everybody stays safe. Um, yeah, in I'm, fact, in, in England, just, in, in, in sorry, the UK, yeah, sorry, in, in 12 the, deaths, yeah. how many? That, I mean, it sounds enormous. How many? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. It's, 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 so the, the death rate um, is anywhere from a high of 1 in 3,500 to a low of maybe 1 in 15,000. So the numbers are somewhat in dispute because we don't really have a great um, denominator. We don't know the exact number of operations that were performed. Of course, we know the number of deaths. We don't just know that we just know how many operations were performed over that time period. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the estimates range from, a, you know, a high of one in 3,500 deaths per, you know, one death per 3,500 operations to one in 15,000. To, to put it in, into perspective, um, you know, the risk of dying in childbirth in the U.S. is about one in 7,000. Uh, the risk of dying after a tummy tuck is like one in 12,000. Um, the risk of, um, you know, let's say dying from bariatric surgery, where they do stomach, you staple your stomach is about one in a thousand. So, I mean, these are not outlandishly, uh, outlandish risks, but again, one death is a tragedy. So we don't mm -hmm. want to make, 
we, we want to make sure everybody's as safe as possible. I mean, they sound kind of high for me, I've got to say, especially for a procedure yeah. that, you know, if you don't yeah. have it, you won't die. If you need bariatric surgery, you know, yeah. you'll probably well, everybody dies. <laughs> something else go wrong. One way, one way or another, everybody dies. The question is, you know, <laughs> what risk? So what we're trying to figure out, you know, look, look, I would never get on a motorcycle, you know? They're, everybody has their own tolerance level for risk and benefit. Um, for a lot of women, uh, you know, one in 10,000 sounds like a, a fair shot, you know, because, and a lot of men too. Uh, but again, th these are in line, one in 12,000, let's say, is sort of in line with, um, with the tummy tuck or the kind of operations that people do fairly routinely. Um, but you know what, there's, the, again, we're talking about elective surgery. So for example, a hip replacement or um, bariatric surgery, those are not things that if you don't have, you will, you will, uh, will kill you in the next week. Um, but they do make your life better. Yeah. And so with any elective surgery, you want to minimize, absolutely minimize the risk. Now, I, I can proudly say, and I hope I don't jinx myself, I've never had a death in my practice. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I heard that the uh, United Kingdom banned the operation, uh, that was one of the impetus for us in the U.S. and South America to kind of band together and say, hey, they're banning this operation in, in the U.K., I don't think they've ever, ever had any deaths in the UK, actually. I think they're all uh, British citizens that went overseas to have the operation in Turkey or Eastern Europe. Right. But um, I think in an abundance of caution, they, uh, they banned it there. So we is wanted it, to make sure- Is it still look, banned in the UK then? You know what? I, I believe that it is. I believe that your um, uh, whatever organization oversees the safety for the, um, the British you know, public health there has issued a warning to stop surgeons, it. Yeah. I think. yeah. So, but again, look, the, 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 the fact is that there's more plastic surgeons in Miami than in, in, than in the entire country Probably. of England. So, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit, it's not exactly apples and oranges that we're comparing. On the other hand, um, we, we need to make sure that this operation, because the demand is not going away, patients will fly wherever they need to to have it done. Right. Our goal is to make sure that wherever patients go, in any country, anywhere, that at least they're asking the right questions of their surgeons to stay safe and that surgeons everywhere know how to do this operation without hurting anybody. Okay. So if, what, what, actually, what are the dangers? If I was about to be on the slab and have this yeah. thing done to me, what, what, you know, what could go wrong? If I was going to be this one in three and a half thousand people who wasn't going to yeah. get off the slab of their own accord. Yeah. So, okay. So let me tell you where the danger lies. So injecting the fat is a fairly simple procedure except for, the fact that if you inject it too deeply, i.e. into the muscle of the butt, the gluteal muscle, there are some fairly large and fragile veins that you could tear. And the fat cells can then, or the globs of fat can go into the venous circulation, travel to the heart and lungs, and kill you almost instantaneously. Okay, um, so it's quick. Yeah, it's quick. It's very, so I guess that's, if there's a yeah, silver lining, I suppose. But no, the... the I, I say that tongue in cheek. Look, it, it, it's a tragedy when it happens, but it's avoidable. In other words, if you are anatomically safe and smart and you don't use cannulas, those are the metal tubes that we use to inject the fat with. If they're not sharp and, they're, and you're injecting in the right place and they're large bore cannulas, they're less likely to go through the muscle or go through veins that they shouldn't be. Right. So now there's a learning curve. There's uh, some anatomy that needs to be learned uh, for surgeons that are going to try this operation. But again, the temptation is just so great 
in many places for many surgeons to try it without necessarily, let's say, knowing what they're doing perfectly. Um, and so we're trying to make sure that if you're thinking about trying this operation out, uh, like any new operation, uh, you need to be aware of certain things. And that's what WAGS is there for, to teach people to get the word out. Uh, again, the surgeons need to know certain things and the patients need to know what questions to ask. You know, what kind of cannulas are you using to inject? They should be at least four millimeters in diameter. They should be blunt tipped and not sharp. You should make sure your surgeon only injects on top of the muscle and not into the muscle or underneath the muscle. Um, the, reason, now, the reason that question is important is because uh, this operation, which has been around for about 25 years, for the first 10 years, the teaching was inject into the muscle because the thought was that the blood supply was better there, the fat cells would survive better. But that turns out to not be the case and in fact makes the operation more dangerous. So we're trying to like have surgeons that have been doing this for a while unlearn bad, uh, bad technique and then new surgeons coming on board uh, that they know how to do it properly. Okay. So I, I, I hope that wasn't too technical for your audience or for you, you know, I mean, I, I kind of got into the actual detail of the surgery. Yeah, but, no, that's good. That's, that's really yeah. good. So I, 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 I actually saw one of the videos. So I, I persevered with the ball pit video and, and <laughs> tummy T video. And I saw a video of this uh, procedure and yeah. I was looking at it and I, actually I was thinking, you know, I, I'm glad you're the surgeon and not me. Cause just watching <laughs> this, I, I, I felt a little bit queasy just watching this thing. Uh, yeah. But, it takes a little getting used to. Yeah, but but for the uninitiated, it did look quite an aggressive kind of action of poking this thing into someone's oh, yeah. butt. Oh yeah, it's it's highly traumatic. It's not. It, it's it is. It's quite an aggressive. Uh, it's not. It, let's put it this way. It's not like taking out a pituitary tumor. You know what I mean? It, there's this. There there is a. Uh, you need you need quite a bit of muscle there. Uh, quite a lot of force and energy to to get the cannula in and inject the fat and so forth but so is and any kind of liposuction if, if you look at videos of liposuction you'll also you might be surprised to see how how violent it is as well but that, that's how we do it you know all right it's a mechanical I mean, operation yeah it is it, it is a major operation it's done yes. under a general anesthetic so it really yes. is something not to be taken lightly correct so, although it can be done under local it can be done I, can I, I choose to do it under general but it can be done under local anesthesia and uh, there are many surgeons that do it that way as well. Right. Okay. Oh, I hadn't realized that. And it, oh, yeah. And it provides, you know, quite a big difference in the way you look. You know, it's, yes. It's oh, yes. Oh, yes. If it didn't, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have uh, you know, people throwing money at surgeons. You know, do it. Take my money. Do yeah. it. Well, so, know, well, it, we'll come on to the money in a bit later. But, yeah. we, we, you know, with the kind of changes that it, it, it makes and the fact that mm -hmm. it's a big deal, do you mm -hmm. kind of provide counseling before and after the procedure to your patients? Always. Yeah, of course. Any, any plastic surgery operation, needs, the patient needs to be educated uh, about, uh, you know, the physical and emotional and psychological aspects and changes that happen. Um, but that, this, this operation is you know, it's not, not specific to this operation per se. I mean, sure. you change your nose, you change the way you look uh, quite dramatically. Uh, and I can imagine that sort of people taking that in all kinds of different ways, you know, because it's a big yeah. part of you, the way your body looks. Yes, it does. It, of course. Of course. Listen, um, listen, it, you, it, it's more like if you, everybody has an image of themselves in their mind, you change that image, you change, uh, uh, you change your life. I mean, in a lot of ways. Um, and especially if you feel more confident, more attractive, 
it, it's quite a, uh, uh, it can be quite a power trip. You know, it can change, you know, who you marry, what kind of jobs you apply for, how, you know, how you feel speaking in public. So it, it, plastic surgery is, you know, it's quite uh, an interesting phenomenon. Do you, do you uh, provide counseling for the partner as well? <laughs> <laughs> you know, sadly, no. Uh, it's usually not part of the thing, but I can tell you stories. I mean. Yeah, tell us a story. Um, well, well uh, change the name. <laughs> I, I can tell you stories. So um, sometimes when uh, uh, one's partner or spouse feels more confident, the dynamics of the marriage can change dramatically uh, with the spouse becoming jealous or insecure, uh, the one that didn't have surgery. Mm. Um, so those things need to be anticipated to some degree. Um, everybody's relationship is a little bit different, but it's, it is something to think about before you go in for surgery. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, so. I've had, I mean, I had one lady post-op, um, her, you know, <laughs> she like literally within two weeks of the surgery, but one of the post-op visits, she said, Oh, by the way, I'm divorcing my husband. <laughs> like what happened? She's like, well, you know, he, uh, the saying, the saying in, in America is he outkicked his coverage, which basically means she feels like she's too pretty for him. So it happens. So he he probably paid for the surgery. Yes, he did. And then she ran. Okay. Have you ever refused? Have you ever refused to take on a patient because you think they're just a bit not emotionally ready for it, a bit emotionally Absolutely. unstable? Yeah, all the time. Do you? I would say 15 percent of the patients that come for me for consultations, I turn away. One one five, not fifty. One fifteen percent. Um, and and yeah, it's 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 half emotional, half physical. You know, uh, I just don't feel like they're good candidates physically or they're emotionally, let's say, not ready to accept happiness or to accept the uh, emotional roller coaster uh, that yeah. can be plastic surgery. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, we do it. We try to do it delicately when we refuse people. You know, this is not the right time for you. We don't think this is going to make you happy for right now. You're better right. off spending your money on your mental health right now. You know, this, this is another reason why I'm not the surgeon, because I might say something like, for goodness sake, please just do something more useful to yourself with all that money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so there's a delicate way of saying that, but that's, that's the message. Yeah, that's the gist of it. Okay. So, and so you, you, you said a, a couple of times that, you know, there's a big demand for this BBL and also yeah. for uh, uh, other, other sorts of surgery. What, What's going on? What's driving this? Why is it so popular? Um, well, I mean, one thing that's changed in the, in the you know, 20 years that I've been in practice is social media. I think that's a huge factor now. Um, people are just looking at themselves more, comparing themselves to other people more. Uh, you know, I grew up in the pre-internet age. There's probably 50 pictures of me from, age, you know, from birth to age 20. And, you know, the average 15-year-old probably takes, you know, 500 pictures a day of themselves. So sure. um, I think that's a big factor. And then also the availability of plastic surgery has become a lot more common. There's more surgeons. Prices are less expensive. The risks, you know, despite this conversation, the risks are actually gotten much, much, much uh, safer uh, for all kinds of surgeries. So right. I think those things combine. Yeah, it's so like it's a perfect kind of, storm. Kind of hype. The hype, the, the hype and the availability you think is yeah hype is availability and, and the cool. options i mean there's there's the, the the bbl didn't exist as an operation 20 years ago really you know right. it was a theoretical thing so so in fact you are fueling it a little bit because you're you're a big oh, a social lot. media guy a with, lot. it's doing 
you know, a lot. Those... And that's and that's why and that's why I started this organization. I feel a little guilty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, uh, I still have, I have to sleep at night. You know, like I don't, I've never had a death, but I mean the fact that I, you know, certainly somebody watching me do the operation somewhere and who knows where gets the idea, does it, and, and dies. I mean, that's you know, I, I feel a little guilty. Yeah. Okay. So responsible. So... You, you've decided to sort of pass on the knowledge that you have to yeah. surgeons. Yeah, not just me. All, all this, all there's, there's like, there's a lot, there's so many great surgeons out there. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it, I think it's the responsibility of surgeons to educate each other and the public. You know, it's like, it's like any new operation or any operation that has risk, a, tr a heart transplant or a kidney. You know, you need to make sure, um, you know, the difference is that those operations just can't be done anywhere by anybody. Uh, yeah. you know, and nobody's paying you cash and, and, you know, th throwing money in your face to do it. Uh, so are they doing this with plastic surgery? Yeah, for sure. They, they yeah. come up to you with a, a, a case full of cash. <laughs> yeah. It's like a truckload. They just back it up. No, it, but, the, but the demand, I mean, I'm being silly, <laughs> but the demand is quite high. Uh, right. Quite high. Okay. Oh. So with that in mind, if, mm -hmm. if someone has decided that this is the right thing to do for themselves and they've got mm -hmm. a ton of cash and they don't want to make themselves feel better by giving it to charity. They want to <laughs> go ahead with this operation. Okay. So but what you got to yeah, do first okay. of all is find yeah. a surgeon that isn't going to kill you. How are you going to do yes, that? That's, I think that's a one that's, that's not, yeah, that's for sure. The first step that the, the, it, but it's, it sounds easy, but it's not, you know, because you need to know what questions to ask. Yes. You know, and you need to know what, how to do your research and so forth. Um, I mean, look, I, I would definitely ask the surgeon, you know, have you ever had a death in your practice? And even if the answer is yes, it might be yes, but let me tell you what happened because, you know, surgery has risk. Of it course. could happen to any, uh, any surgery, even going to the dentist. You can, people have died just from the Novocaine injections. You should need to ask that question and then say, well, what happened? And if the answer is, well, I injected fat into the muscle and they died, you know, that would be a red flag. On the other hand, they might say, I would never do that again. You know, I've, you know, this is, we've changed our technique. It's more safe, et cetera. But those questions need to be asked. You definitely don't want to go in to surgery with someone who has, is like a cowboy mentality, you know, where, uh, you know, or certainly, or like a factory type setting where it's so just does, patient I mean, after does that patient. exist in the States? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh God. It, it I mean, exists everywhere. It exists everywhere. It, it exists Certainly uh, in the States, it exists in South America, it exists in, uh, in, in countries all over the world, in Eastern Europe. Uh, it may be a tad safer in the UK because the, uh, the, I guess the medical system is more regulated. But again, it's, it's not, there's no amount of regulation that can stop uh, a cannula from going into the wrong place and injecting, you know, people still die in surgery, even in, even in England. So the, the point is that the point is that you need to make sure that your the specific surgeon operating on you knows the safe way to operate, right. has done it before, and that you're a good candidate physically and uh, you know emotionally, and then you can go ahead, and then it's fantastic, you know, um, for many people. Yeah. All right. So finding the right questions to ask, and I guess finding other people that have been operated on by this guy. Yes, is, is it's a good idea. Go. Good idea. That's a good idea. So what's That's that? A, a bit idea. of serious Googling or how can you do yeah, that? Yeah, a bit of serious Googling. And, you know, you can go on social media. You know, many, many patients on so, uh, go through plastic surgery uh, journeys, we call them, and they document them on social media. And if you, uh, if you just do a, a quick search there for BBL 
you'll find literally hundreds, maybe thousands of women that document every step of their process, which doctor they're using, what questions they're asking. Right. Is it um, actually, is it only women? Guys, I must, men it's, must it's, it's, No, it's, it's like, I would say 95% women, 5% men. And, a, and, and a, an occasional couple that will come in, husband and wife, or girlfriend, boyfriend, and do it together. Okay, very sweet. Yeah. It's like Valentine's present or something. Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah. and uh, one thing, this is going to seem like a really silly question, so uh, apologies, mm -hmm. but so on, on your website, you had Priceless, which kind of surprised me that you had that there anyway. Now, I'm, I'm you know, I'm kind of fat. Would I be more expensive? Because like, there might be more stuff to suck out <coughs> and stick it well, in the right place. Well, look, I mean, I, I limit this, the maximum size of the patients that I'll operate on. So for example, your body mass index has to be 30 or below. So, it, so, so we don't run into these questions. So right. 30 or below means above 30, you're technically obese. Um, below 30 is you might be slightly overweight, but still at a healthy weight. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I'm, I'm never faced with having the liposuction, you know, 15 liters or 20 liters of fat out of somebody. But I can refer you to a very, very good surgeon in Tunisia, uh, sorry, in Morocco, that does uh, 20, 30 liters of fat and uh, liposuction in a hospital there. So, I mean, there's places to go, but it just won't be in my practice. Okay. So you but yes, you'd it. probably be charged more by him, by Dr. Tazi in Morocco. <laughs> so he charges per liter, does he? Oh, you know what? I don't know, but he, he is a fantastic surgeon. So <laughs> maybe. All right. Fantastic. So look, I, th this whole world is fascinating to me because yeah. it's just something I've, I've, I've never come across. And I have to say, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> and, you know, I, I sounded a bit flippant because it's just something I don't know anything about. And I suppose I'm lucky in that I've never felt <laughs> yeah. the need to well, have. If, if, you're, if you're born an Adonis like yourself, I mean, I've never seen a picture of you, but you know, could be. Then you I've don't to, think yeah. about these things. But I've got to, people, I've got to say know, this about good-looking people. You know, we're not well-liked. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you have a few advantages over the rest of us. So we're a I'm a jealous. very regular, slightly chubby bloke. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very interesting chatting. Um, Thank you. If pe People will be listening to this. And if they want to find out a bit more about you or, uh -huh. or these kind of... Um, procedures in general i'm assuming yeah. you've got a website and if you just well i've sure. seen it if you just sure google so, so for, for yeah for me it's very easy to find me if you just google dr miami uh, i'll come right up you know website uh etc and social media and so forth on, on instagram it's the real dr miami on snapchat it's the real dr miami uh tiktok even now have you had tech have you tried tiktok no i'm a tiktok oh. virgin oh you should you should download it immediately the minute this conversation is over it's, it's hours of endless fun once you uh, get the hang of it. Um, but, but that's it. But if you want information about the World Association of Gluteal Surgeons, the website is glutealsurgeons.org. And it has a map of the world, and you can click on your country and, and find a surgeon near you that's okay. committed to safety in this town. Right. I, I will put a link to that on my, on my blog and various social medias that I, I, I put this on. So, Dr. Miami, thank you uh -huh. very much indeed for chatting. Thank you. Thank you for having me and have a great evening. Let's back UK. Run by my daddy. So if you want to avoid the need for plastic surgery in the future, remove the need for a bit of lipo, maybe you need to move around a little more. 
Why not keep moving when you sit at your desk? It's better for you, it's good for your posture, your back might not hurt so much, and also you might burn off a few calories. Try sitting on the back at chair. You can try it out for free, that's if you are in the UK. Just go to my website, relaxbackuk.com, click on the try out a back at chair button, fill in your details and I will take care of everything for you. Now shortly we're going to hear from a couple of people who were at the Changing Face of Medicine conference. It's nothing to do with plastic surgery but it's looking at how medicine might change in the next two decades. Let's back UK run by my daddy. Patients are what medicine is for, so they should be right at the centre of any decisions. Dr Patricia Wilkie has been part of a working group that reported to the Changing Face of Medicine conference, and the group has been looking at what, as patients, we might expect or hope from the medical world. And I started by asking her what the makeup of the group was. The group is a, a, a group of doctors and lay people working together and the paper that I gave was a, 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 an accumulation of their views. Um, and the lay people, I, there were two of them sitting over there, uh, the others have not been able to come today. Uh, a couple of GPs in, in the room um, that were part of the group. Right, so um, it, was, it was a working group that's been looking at these things yes. for a, a year and a half? 18 months, yep, okay. yep. Well, one of the things that seemed, one of the topics that's, or cause that seemed to crop up in the things you said was sort of communications and, and how we engage, how we as patients engage with the medical world. And you gave some examples of things that I found, well, I suppose I'd never really thought about them before, how it's very common for doctors in hospitals to send letter, a letter to our GP about us and not include us, just not, we're not part of the picture. The, we don't even get a copy. They, that is true. Uh, the clinical genetic societies uh, about 30 years ago recommended that, that genetic consultations, which are long and complex, the letter be sent to the patient, copied to the GP. Uh, there was a, a cry, outcry, that this would be too complicated, it would take too long. The beginning of the letter would be personal to the patient, the end would be what had been decided. The middle bit would be about the illness, the disease, and how it's transmitted, so that's a cut and paste. It is exactly the same with the majority of the letters from uh, secondary or tertiary care to patients. The way that the tone of the letter is changed if it's written to the patient. There's a specimen letter from the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, but about um, a month ago, uh, a nephrologist had a, a letter published in the BMJ uh, about how he's been doing this and how it makes him think it's better for the patient. Absolutely. You know, because you're involved. In fact, you, you're, the, you're the most important part in all this. It's you and your body. Uh, yes, and, and it's so... Uh, I received a letter about um, a month ago from a Centre of Excellence tertiary care, and it had about medication. It was a letter to the GP 
uh, as if they didn't know the medication. I have eye drops, which had nothing to do with this problem I was being seen in the, in the um, tertiary sector. And it says, this is reported by the patient. We have not checked that this is correct. And there was an exclamation mark. Just kind of a bit rude almost, really, isn't it? Well. <laughs> All right. On to something else that you, you, you mentioned, and I could tell you, you you were quite fired up about this one. Health records and our data. And, you know, at, at, the, at the moment, the situation is pretty much, most of us don't really have access to our, our health data. Uh, we have no direct access to our hospital records but we're entitled to ask for them and to get them copies of reports or anything we want if it's a lot they may ask us to pay for the copy um, the photocopy uh, our GP record is available online uh, um, by dif- with different of the suppliers but it goes through another software company now, one of the software companies that it goes through states that the record is stored somewhere in the European Economic Community. What does that mean? And where is the transparency? And in any case, the record is minimal. It's not going back um, a long time. It depends how much has been put in. It's really been done in order that we can get repeat prescriptions and make appointments. It's not for us accessing our records, but if you have one, two, three, four, five, six, however many different conditions, what you want is to be able to see your records quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, not just you, the doctor doctor that's looking after you. Yes, and anybody you may meet who is going to look after you. Right, so is that going to change in the next 10, 20 years? Uh, So John um, Oldham, who is a labour... Um, person uh, about five years ago recommended that the the GP record is currently owned by the Secretary of State Um, uh, he recommended that it be changed to be owned by the patient kept in safekeeping in the GP practice Um, I would like to see that that requires an act of parliament to change it what I would like to see is that happening right well that's Let's hope it does. I think that's got a good chance, actually. Well, with the patient revolution, yes. Okay. Right, patient revolution. <laughs> last thing, just last topic, because they, they've restarted. And I, I, so, some of what you talked about was how to get all of us patients involved, you know, masters of our own self-management. Now, this sounds like a, an excellent thing, but I've I've got a suspicion that it might be quite hard to do not just because of how the the medical world um, behaves and needs to change works us patients need to get involved as well and I think a lot of a lot of us go to the doctor expecting to be fixed yes so we need to get involved how can we change that we can change it because we will be able to change it because we're going to be told to go and do uh, have exercise and gush mentioned this and to stop smoking and uh, all the different things that's not going to solve the problem 
but we're going to be asked to take more responsibility and taking responsibility means getting involved in self-management and and it's essential and and if you're I mean I'm not but if one was a diabetic I don't know enough about it but you've got to um, inject or take tablets and test uh, test your urine and your blood regularly you will want to know what your results are you'll want to know them quickly so you are involved as a partner in this uh, management of your condition and it it saves time it saves the patient time that's never costed I didn't mention that today but it's never costed him to the whole equation and it will save the the medical profession or the healthcare profession's time too it must do Excellent. All right. Well, let, let's hope that that can happen. So, based based on all that, are you hopeful for the next ten or twenty years that things will improve, or just kind of jog along as they have I, been? I, I am hopeful, providing I can have energy to keep pushing. <laughs> well, on on showing today, I think that's not going to be a problem. You've got plenty of energy. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for chatting. My pleasure. Thank you. Then I moved on to speak to a a relatively newly qualified doctor. His name was Richard Cruttenden. And I asked him if he'd heard anything at the conference that had surprised him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fantastic like, conference to, to go to. I'm a, so I'm a foundation year doctor, so I'm quite a, a new doctor. Um, but it's amazing to see kind of, well, you know, kind of the, the leading experts talk about what we feel the future of medicine will be, both from a doctor and patient perspective. And I think kind of the, the, the social challenges that we were anticipating kind of between how the future of the doctor-patient relationship will be and how technology will influence that has been something that's been really eye-opening for me given that in a few years time this will be something that this will be the work environment that I'll be kind of moving into and, and hopefully kind of take more of a leadership role in. So do you think the skills that you thought you had and which is why you wanted to become a doctor will be different you know in five or ten years time are you going to need to be able to do and know how to do different things? I think I think fundamentally the the kind of core communication between patient uh, the doctor and the patient will always be there. But I think you're you're absolutely right in that what we have to deal with in terms of um, being able to interpret different types of data, being able to deal with new modes of technology, and how that interacts with the patient. That is something that we will have to kind of learn to adapt to definitely. And did in, well so far technology has been spoken about quite a lot. Was there sort of one thing that came across to you as being likely to cause the biggest changes in the next 10 or 20 years? I think the talk that we had on genomics and how kind of genes and medicine uh, interact is something that we will definitely be watching out for in the next 10 years, given that prior to this it's been very much uh, treating something that's already happened, whereas genes will give us the opportunity to Uh, possibly predict and then treat things in more precise detail than we've ever been able to do so before. Right. Prediction is kind of interesting. That could scare a few people in in thinking, well, actually, I don't really want to know that I'm going to get dementia age 50. I I, I don't know. What do you think? Absolutely. And and I guess this is why we're talking about uh, today. You know, it's just a concept at the moment. But we already have forms of that now. We talk about risk profiles with patients. So if you've had X condition before um, or if your family members have had X condition before and we already know that it's genetically linked, then we already know your risk is higher. And I'd argue that you're right. Not everyone wants to know. And that's entirely up to the individual patient. 
But if we're in a position where we can say your risk is higher, we can find ways to reduce that risk, I'd argue that's a lot better for both patient and the doctor and healthcare in general. So in fact, in many ways, it's just a slightly more advanced way of doing what we're doing already. Absolutely, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Okay. What else? So you've spoken about the genomics. Anything else in particular come to mind? It's, 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 very, it's very difficult to say. It's always very difficult to kind of predict the future. And we're, we're talking about things that we de- we're dealing with now and kind of trying to extrapolate that into the future. Whereas things have always, the way f- things change always tend to be in shifts. So the Victorians, they envisaged a world of steam. It's very, it's very difficult for them. It would have been difficult for them to predict the world we're in now. But I, I'd say that fundamentally the, the role of the doctor and the patient is one that is built on mutual trust and communication regardless of the kind of social and technological changes around that I think that will always be the enduring thing that underlies the heart of healthcare. Good. So you're still glad you decided to become a doctor? Oh definitely 100%. <laughs> That's the right answer I think we can leave it there thank you. Oh, perfect thank you very much. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's Relax Back UK show and they were Dr Miami, plastic surgeon, Dr Patricia Wilkie, member of a working party at the Changing Face of Medicine conference and also Dr Richard Cruttenden, attendee at the same conference. And of course, thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.